McDonald's se está transformando en el mundo anime de McDonald's y te trae la nueva savory chili McDonald's sauce. Los mejores sabores se unen en esta legendaria salsa para que tus 10-piece chicken wackduggets, papitas y Sprite se conviertan en un meal ultra poderoso. Desbloquea un manga con tu meal y disfruta de un corto de anime cada semana. Solo en McDonald's. Badabababa, go! En McDonald's participantes por tiempo limitado hasta agotar existencias. Hi, Carmen. Hey, Frida, what's up? Actually, should I be calling you Mabel? Yeah, yeah. Okay, so why are we calling me Mabel? And first of all, who is Mabel? Mabel is Carmen's middle name, which I heard for the first time in high school when I came over to Carmen's house and her dad was going to make me a mango smoothie and he screamed, As Mabel! He does. From the other Because side I was of the ready. house. And I was just like, who is that? The most Cuban head. thing ever is when you're at somebody's house and they're having a full conversation, screaming at each other from like three floors difference. I'm kidding, I'm exaggerating. Miami houses only have two floors, but still. Um, <laughs> yeah, Mabel is my middle name. And the reason why we are using my middle name today is because we are speaking to another Carmen, Carmen Peláez. She is a filmmaker, writer, and activist, also a fellow Cubanita. And we're really excited to get into this today because I think The thing that brought us here, Frida, was another memory. Oh, oh my God, Carmen. I do love this story. I loved learning this about you. Yeah, so as you may or may not know, Frida and I were both born in Cuba and we immigrated to Miami when we were both little. And in those first few months when you're sort of acclimating and settling, lots of things happen. And one of the things that happened to me was that we were driving down Coral Gables. And if you don't know Coral Gables and you've never been to Miami, Coral Gables is the bougiest neighborhood of Miami, the classic bougie neighborhood. Now there's one wood and many others. But at the time in the 90s, Coral Gables was like these beautiful mansions and all of this amazing, glorious, beautiful tree, canopy, streets. It was beautiful. So we're driving down the street and I'm like five. And my parents are like, do you want to go back to Cuba? And my brother was like, oh yeah, I miss my friends and my school and you know, the dogs and all this stuff and when it came to me I was like hard no I'm staying here and so I bring this up this story up I bring this story up because I think the idea of living in exile is one that I have always wanted to explore more because it's one that really divides us as Cubans and us as in even in Miami right not just from from the island to and in Miami but even the folks that are in Miami I feel like there's always a divide between the people who think that they're going to go back to Cuba for you know to reclaim things and then there's people who think well I this is my life here now And I think five-year-old Carmen made her decision. She's like, this is life now. And what better person to speak with this about than Carmen Peláez, who has made a lot of her life's work exploring the ways that Cubans, a lot of the ways that this, uh, this becomes an undertone to our Cubanity. So thank you so much for joining us today, Carmen. Welcome to Take It Easy. I am so excited to be here with you ladies. Thank you for inviting me on. Carmen, we'd love to get to know you a bit more. I know that Carmen and I have read so much about you, heard so much about you, seen you in interviews, seen all sorts of raving reviews about the kind of work that you do and the way that you explore issues, the issues of the heart and issues of politics, even in your storytelling. It's funny because whenever people ask me, you know, who I am, I'm always like, I'm just like a dancing monkey that can write a line or two. Um, I, I <laughs> went to school. I wanted to be an actor. I saw Whoopi Goldberg when I was 15 and I was like, I want to do that. I saw her solo play 
on HBO. And then I went to school for acting. And like a month after I was done in New York at American Academy of Dramatic Arts, a friend of mine was like, didn't you say you wanted to do a solo piece? And I had written a monologue in movement class. So I was like, yeah, I guess I'll use the monologue I wrote in movement class. And it was Juana. And it was about her night out at Club Mystique. And like finding Prince Charming. First of all, I love that your first character that you ever wrote was named Juana. Absolutely. Let's start there. Like, <laughs> of in course. everything I write, there's like Juana, Pepe. There's always like a gallo. Like, there, there, I always try and put. <laughs> and, and the funny thing is, I grew up in Jewish neighborhoods in Miami, right? I did not, my own, mm. the only, most of my friends were either Jewish or Colombian. I did not make Cuban friends outside of my family until I came back from New York to perform what would eventually become rum and like what had become rum and coke from that one monologue. What's rum and coke? Rum and coke was my first solo play. Well, my only solo play because God, it was boring to act on stage alone, but it's my, it was my solo play. It was about my first trip to Cuba and it posits that I'm in a museum of modern art and I decide, I, I come upon an Amelia, my great aunt Amelia, the painter, she's got a couple pieces at MoMA, and I come upon one of her pieces in person for the first time. Because for many years, you know, I'm older than you guys, so for many years, like, I only had black and white pictures of Amelia's work, and she's an artist that's always known for her color, right? Mm. So I was always very, made very aware of this other place where there was this extraordinary life, and, and these incredible things happened, and one day we'd go back to there. Like, it was just um, part of my upbringing, you know? Like, we weren't allowed to speak English at home because my dad didn't want us to lose our Spanish. I got to fifth grade saying, like, I hungry, and what time says I'm three, like... Aw. <laughs> the priorities. Totally, right? Big bird and ham. <laughs> What do you call it? I think my first word was Juan at La Casa Blanca, like cafeteria on 8th Street, because Juan me daba jamón. Bro, the real MVP. <laughs> the real MVP here, this whole story is Juan, el carnicero at Casa Blanca eh, lunch counter. I, th I mean, I was raised with storytellers, so, and they're brilliant storytellers. Right. So the, yeah. the way they painted everything and, and, and it, there was the richness with which they always spoke when they spoke about their lives in Cuba, the nonsensicalness. Like my grandmother would tell me, ah, you know, si, si estuviéramos en Cuba, hablaría francés. And I was like, I, I don't know what that means. You know? Yeah, what but does she, that mean? Yeah, but she, she taught French in, 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 in Cuba. So, of course, I'd speak French because, you know, the uh, Cubans were tremendous Francophiles. There's so many Antonietas. That's true. Marie Antoinette mm -hmm. wannabes. You know, what's interesting is that I didn't really think about being Cuban before I left for New York. I went to, like, UCF yeah. for, like, 10 minutes for a semester. And... I was shocked at how different Orlando was in Miami. Mm -hmm. Right? Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. it was like, oh, you're one of those Cubans. You know, like, oh, you're a Cuban. Like Scarface. And I was like, <laughs> oh, my God, what planet have I landed on? And I was only four hours away from home. Yeah. When I got to New York, 
you had Cuba was very fashionable to travel to Cuba and people would tell mm -hmm. me, oh, but, you know, what do, what do you know about Cuba if you've never been? You're just one of those Miami exiles. So when I wrote the monologue of Juana, who happened to be a Cuban girl, like totally decked out in her spandex because it keeps everything in, you know, and she answers these questions that people would say, like, why do Cubans do this and why do Cubans do that? And I kind of put them into the storytelling of Juana. That night I was terrified because it was all these acts that were like really like daily show type banjo, like really smart political acts, like Americano Americano, right? It didn't get more yeah, American. Yeah. There was like an opera singer, a banjo player that did political comedy, like all this kind of stuff. And I thought, esta like Chumita from Miami that's like obsessed with my beine and her spandex and her Prince Charming, like nobody's going to get it. Maybelline, Maybelline, Maybelline. Okay, Maybelline all day. And I was like, I think I'm not really a scared performer. Like usually my stage manager's directions to me are make sure she's awake at 10 minutes when I was doing my solo show because I just don't get nervous. But that night, I, like I could, I could still feel my heart in my throat and I tore the room up. People loved it. Loved it. <laughs> That is the thing. It is so well received, this like this humor. I think it's because it's so relatable, even if you're not Cuban, to to just be so authentic and so unapologetically, like with your little spandex and your mabellina, like that is the most that's the most relatable thing that resonates. That's the thing. Like I, I, I studied what Whoopi Goldberg said about her one woman show. I said what Billy Crystal said about creating characters. And you know, they always Whoopi said you have to take the thing that means the most to you and say it in the most dangerous way. So you can almost mm -hmm. bring people into your petting zoo of like, and you're putting a lion in front of them, but they're not afraid to pet it. And Billy Crystal told this amazing story how like he was there with his manager and this comic was like killing it and everybody was loving him and he had to go next. He's like, I can't follow that. And his manager's like, he didn't leave a tip on the table. And he's like, what are you talking about? And he's like, he didn't leave a tip on the table. Right now, he just finished. Tell me one joke that he made. And Crystal was like, well, I, uh, uh, and he couldn't remember. And he's like, yeah, he didn't leave a tip on the table. So that's why Billy Crystal developed the, the tactic of always having like, you look beautiful. Like all of his characters had like a, a line, right? And they all had like a purpose. And I tried to make sure that as I, I built this one woman show in New York, all Cuban characters, my abuela, a santera, a Cuban jinetera, my tia abuela in Cuba, a, a Cuban singer, right? And I built them all like exploring death, what it is to have to make that choice to go into exile, separation, heartbreak. So I really explored universal themes through the Cuban lens. And I think that it, it, it's incredibly satisfying for me because it ties into how I was raised. You know, they say write what you know. And I, I never wanted to write like identity politics stuff. Like I never wanted to do, uh, let me explain to you more. Just like, let me just show you a slice of, of, of the life that I know. Right. And I, mm -hmm. I do like, you know, like, listen, there, there are certain people, Francis Ford Coppola, they didn't want him to use Italians in The Godfather. You know, Barbara Streisand was too Jewish. Jerry Seinfeld was too Jewish, you know, and yet their humor, like, and their ability to mix who they are with something much greater than them has transcended. And I don't know that 
Cubans. I don't know that we have a Cuban American that's been able to do that for this audience yet, but I do know that I enjoy trying, right? Oh my God, snapping over here. I, I agree with that so hard. Yeah, like those are the stories that I like telling. Like, you know, I lived in New York for 20 years and then I get back to Miami and I remember I was getting my driver's license again. And, and you know, I lived in Brooklyn, super like I lived in Brooklyn before it was like, you know, super curated before it was like <laughs> 718. You know, when I moved to Brooklyn, people are like, you're moving to Brooklyn. And I was like, yeah, it's just right over the bridge. But um, I realized like my eye had gotten so dull. Right. Mm-hmm. It everything was curated. Everything was just so. And yeah, like that cool coffee shop is great. Oh, look at this restaurant and that Thai place. And, they, and, you, and you love it all, but then it becomes very bland. And I came down right before moving back down to Miami, actually. I had an event here and I had to fly down. And I'm like, oh, let me take advantage and get my, my driver's license. And I was in a driver's license office with like a thousand and five people and there were like chancletas with flowers on them and like <laughs> the clothes and the hair and everybody looked different, but everybody looked like an individual. And like my eyes and my like my senses came to life again, you know, and I was like, oh, this is what raw life looks like. This is like what uncure. I went to like Mall of the Americas DMV. Okay, but also you're at the DMV. Like, <laughs> that is also a microcosm of, like, rawness. <laughs> totally. Always, right? Always. And I'm pretty sure if I would have been at the Brooklyn DMV, everybody would have been dressed like they're churning butter. Because I was in Brooklyn at that time where everybody had, like, the suspenders. And you're like, is the horse and buggy out? You've got a horse and buggy outside, don't you? Oh, my God. <laughs> I know you do, you bastard. But um, so it, it just, it, it was the right time for me to come back to Miami. And then I find... You know, if it's one thing I think our people are rich in is storytelling. Mm-hmm. At the end of the day, we're an island, right? We're like the Irish. We're like the English. We're like the Japanese. Mm-hmm. So so we have to entertain ourselves. And I think that's one, like, cultural tradition that I've held on to. And I, I genuinely take joy in it. You know, in, in my audience, when I hear, like, <laughs> oh, I'm like, got him. Like, God, yeah. I'm like, can't get away from me now. Now they're mine. Like, it, it feels so good. I wish you could see this listener because Garmin just did a whole, like, thing with her hands that was super Cuban. Uh, uh, yeah, that's <laughs> that's the other thing. Like, it's, you know, I, I well, the funny thing is before I left to New York, everybody thought I was a New Yorker. And when I was actually in New York, people didn't know what I was. So mm-hmm. when people ask me, like, well, what are you? I'm always like, oh, my God, super Cuban. Mm-hmm. I'm, like, extremely Cuban. And I still say that because I, I do think I am. And, and you know, it's funny that you mentioned Coral Gables because it's just a part of town I can – I've never been able to stand Coral Gables. Mm-hmm. I just – I can't stand it. I, I, I think it all looks like, like Epcot to me, right? Because it's <laughs> not like – they're not real colonial houses. They're just like they, – they look not. like – Epcot Colonial House. I just, oh, it drives me crazy. But people, you know, never knew that I was Cuban. And I and I think that's very funny because in Cuba, when I would go to Cuba, la gente me decía, pero tú eres cubana. And I'm like, you'll see. And then, yeah. like, if I was there, if I was dressed in, like, you know, semi-regular clothes, because I would not go, like, dressed to the nines. I don't go anywhere dressed to the nines, but I would not mm-hmm. go, like, super fancy with jewelry. No, I would go, like, T-shirts, 
overalls, shorts. It was the 90s. So forgive the overalls. I know they're back now, but still, um, you know, uh, sneakers. And then as I would state, like as the week would progress, I'd go visit my tia abuela, Amelia's sister, Ninita. I'd get more tan. And mm-hmm. then people would say, Niña, ¿cómo tú te fuiste? I'm like, no, mi vida, yo nací de allá. I'm like, no me diga. <laughs> like it was just so, but that would always happen at the end of the trip. And I just think it's funny that in Cuba, people always recognize me as Cuban. And outside mm-hmm. of Cuba, a lot of times it's a question, you know? So I think like, I don't know. I think my brand of storytelling comes from there. I, I'm not like the croquetica storyteller, you know, even mm-hmm. though I've used tropes as an entry point before, I've used archetypes as an entry point before, anything beyond the entry point, they become incredibly boring to me. Something I was thinking about actually really early on and a as a through line in this conversation, you mentioned the stories that your family told you so vividly, this kind of story that you hear about Cuba and the kind of storytelling that often like emerges like after exile or after departure. And I'm, I'm wondering how those stories started, like what were their tone, like what kind of stories would they tell about their lives? And then how like how this story about yourself and your position in the world evolves as you go, uh, then go back over to Cuba at some point in your life. So my mom's side of the family, extremely sardonic. My grandmother hardly ever spoke of Cuba. She she never talked mm-hmm. about it. When I did the monologue as her, I actually interviewed all of her siblings with like five questions, like when you, about when they left Cuba, what they missed most about Cuba, what they wish they could see again in Cuba. And when I asked my grandmother, like, I left her for last, and I was like, Abuela, ¿qué es lo que más extrañas de Cuba? And she's like, nada, no, no, no quiero hablar de eso, nada. And I'm like, and that's mm. exactly why I'm writing the monologue from your perspective. Because she held it very close. She held it extremely close. On my father's side, it was always tied to art. So I used to color a lot when I was little and anything I would do, like I I never cared for dolls or I like to play outside, but I was always like an arts and crafts nerd, like a box of Crayolas and I was thrilled or like a fresh box of markers were like honey was dripping from the sky. I was so happy. It was just like that was I won with a fresh box of markers and um, they would be like, I como Amelia. So it was always tied through art. And my grandmother's sister on my father's side, Ernesto Galindo, was a big radio star. So when I was me and, you know, very like, blah, 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 you know, and, 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 and super like expressive and stuff, you know, Tio Ernesto, which, which I knew, he died when I was in the first grade, but I, I remember him pretty vividly. Super handsome guy, really sweet. Um, you know, they'd be like, oh, maybe she's going to. So to me, Cuba, oh, and your Tio Ernesto worked in radio and Emira como Amelia. And then they'd show me the black and white pictures of her work. And through my mother's side, actually my grand uncle on my mother's side that was in prison for 27 years, you know, my bisabuela was still in Cuba and I would write her a pipita, but they wouldn't talk about Cuba as longingly. My grandmother wouldn't talk about it, but it was more a thing of like, la gente que todavía estaban en Cuba. So I think that the past was so hurtful that they kept it really close. And it wasn't until my first trip to Cuba when I came back the first thing I did is still like quarters in the phone, no cell phones. I called my grandparents 
and they pick up Oigo, and I was like, <gasps> and I just started crying. And like, Cami, Cami, pero que te pasa? Está bien. Cami, que te pasa? And all I could say through my tears is, you know, it's so much more beautiful than, 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 than you had told me, you know? And it was so much more worse than they could imagine. And they, calmate, calmate. Mañana venimos para casa y comemos. Calmate. Okay. The next day they came over and it was the first time both of my grandparents talked to me as an adult in serious about what their life in Cuba and what the revolution was like and what it was like for them having to leave. And I was in my 20s. So it's it's interesting the ways that it gets to you because you hear these stories and, you know, back then, once a year, PBS would play this documentary called La Cuba de Ayer. Mm? I don't know if you guys uh, know okay. about this. No, please tell us about La Cuba de Ayer. This is in the 70s and 80s. So it was called La Cuba de Ayer, right? And it showed, like, all the different industries. And you saw, like, Cuba in Technicolor. And remember, you, you weren't allowed to leave with pictures. You weren't allowed to, you know, a lot of the pictures were black and white. You know, like, Cuba was behind a real... It's not now that you can open up your phone and see Cuba. You know, there's no Google map. Like, Cuba was really on another planet. Mm -hmm. You might as well have been on another planet. So once a year, everybody would gather around the television and watch this La Cuba de Ayer. And of course, it is the most uncritical view. <laughs> like, oh my goodness, it's it's like it's special. A because it shows how advanced in many ways we really were, and B because it shows like the revolution was inevitable. <laughs> like there was there was no way to avoid it because we were clueless. Like the the our presentation was so far from some like too much of our reality, right? Because even though Cuba had the largest middle class in in Latin America at the time, like mm -hmm. still and like economically we were doing good, but there like there were still problems, which I would say. It just the the corruption, right? The, the fact that yeah. Batista was a coup. Like, the problems were huge still. Like, every country has mm -hmm. problems, right? But the funny thing is that as an adult, when I was actually going to do my play Rum and Coke in Chicago, my producers wanted to get an idea. And I was like, oh, there's this great documentary. You have to see La Cuela y La Cuela y Like, oh, yeah, I had to special order it, the whole nine yards. Then I saw the famous Soviet film, I Am Cuba, mm. which is like a masterful film insofar as like the filmmaking's concerned, right? Mm -hmm. Like it did that brilliant underwater shot that like Boogie Nights copied and like Scorsese talks about this film. It's a brilliant film. But the amazing thing about it is that Soy Cuba is an indictment for today's Cuba and La Cuba de Ayer is an indictment for Pre-59 Cuba. It's like they totally switched places. Mm -hmm. To me, that was a huge lesson because I was like, Cubans, I don't think, will ever stop rope-a-doping themselves, right? Because in having to defend what we've lost, we've lost our ability to be critical and we've lost our ability to truly look at why we lost it, what we lost, you know, what we can gain, right, and and how to, f how, how to get it back. You know, it's, I, I don't hear people talking anymore about getting their property back or anything. There's a few people that talk about it. Like, but like my grandparents said, like my house here was three times bigger than my house ever was in Cuba. Like in a big way, they survived it, you know, but Cuba didn't survive. I don't think Cuba has survived 
what the revolution has done to us over there or over here. Because if you look at Cuba, like pre-1959, we were a super progressive country. Like if you look at our constitution, the 1940 constitution, that was progressive. You know what I'm saying? Like we outlawed slavery in Cuba before it was outlawed here. Like there's, we were a progressive country. And to me, like by not looking at the things that led to the revolution with a jaundiced eye and not looking at how that kind of resentment politics really took root in the same way that resentment politics has taken root here. Like it, that's how we lost our, our, our fledged. It was a baby democracy at the time. We were only democracy for like 50 years, you know, Republic for like Mm -hmm. 50 years. So, yeah, so that that was a big lesson to me when I saw those two doc- those two documentaries. What we're still encountering is trying to understand how how we depict ourselves, how we depict a period in time, like our relationship to the past, to the present, our like even our positioning in the world, like is entirely reflected in the kind of stories we tell. Like you can, you saw in like Soy Cuba, like they had the perspective that the story was going to show that this place is amazing and the revolution persevered. And yet like their perspective is, it's exactly their flaw. Like mm-hmm. having that that narrowed perspective, you know. Like yeah. I, whenever I go to Cuba, inevitably, I, I haven't gone uh, in a few years. And honestly, I I always find people that are like muy fidelistas until they're not. And sure, you know, we've gotten to a point where where we have to defend the fact that we got fooled. We have to defend the fact that we made a mistake, because plenty of people did back Fidel and still do. He didn't do it alone. He did it with the help of millions of Cubans that turned on their neighbors. And he did it with the help of other millions of Cubans that didn't care about their neighbors. So mm. it's it, it was a combination of things. And I feel like we're so backed into a corner, like when people... When people that are have completely bought the Cuban Revolution propaganda talk to me, they're like, oh, so you're about these Tiana? And I'm like, absolutely not. About these, I was a dictator. <laughs> Why does it have to be one or the other? Exactly. Like, they keep trying to push you like, into this binary. Those are two dictators. These are two unideal times in history. Like, <laughs> Yeah, and, and they always try and push you to that. And, and you know, the problem is... Frida, when you're not able to be honest about your own history, you give people, other people, the right to tell it. Mm-hmm. Right? Mm-hmm. So if mm-hmm. we can't say, yeah, Cuba had big problems, we were eaten with corruption, Batista was a dictator, then some Americano that got a propaganda, you know, propaganda trip to Cuba can say, oh, all you Cubans fled on your yachts. You know, like it's it's mm. like I don't necessarily like the fact that we have to do the mea culpa whenever we're talking about Cuba. Like the 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 most hardcore, you know, progressive liberal of of which I am, right? They'll 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 always try and make you yeah, but and I'm like, there's no but when it comes to human rights or dictatorship. Mm-hmm. But if you're gonna talk to me about the problems that Cuba had, fine. How about we compare the Cuban Revolution to its own metric and to its own promises? You know, I am completely anti-embargo, but how about we look at the fact that during COVID they built luxury hotels? Mm-hmm. 
like what's that about you know so so it's it, i i don't like doing the mea culpa but i think amongst ourselves we have to have oh, a yes. moment where we're honest mm-hmm. definitely and i think carmen you know one thing that is really interesting to me and has always been very interesting to me is unpacking unpacking these contradictions because we're full of them 100 percent. and it isn't just at the the societal level it isn't just at the political level it is also on the one-on-one level and i think that that is such a it's such a difficult thing for me to understand because the same things that have always helped us wind up hurting us and vice versa and it's almost like this loop that we can't break out of and i would love to hear your thoughts on that i mean my thoughts are that can be very eloquently stated in one phrase si pero no (laughs) how often do we say yeah but no So it's, we, like, I think we're kind of masters of cognitive dissonance. You know, there's a great movie, a great Cuban movie that I saw five years ago that I hadn't seen. It was done in the early days of the revolution called Lucia. And it takes three different Lucias in three different times in Cuban history. The first one was our war of independence. The second one was during Gerardo Machado's dictatorship. And the third is during the revolution. And you see these three different Lucias live in their time. And my sister turns to me at the end of the movie and she says, God, to think we got it, we got off easy, you know, <laughs> because the cycles of the mistakes that we keep mm-hmm. making, we haven't broken it. If you think that we fought our war of independence and the first thing that we did was turn around and kill our black soldiers and hand power to the United States after we fought for 10 years to get our independence and we were the last ones to kind of fight for like we're the la ultima perla de la corona you know mm-hmm. because we like to feel special we like we like the exceptionalism we like the story that washington came to cuba to to raise money for the american independence and cuban women gave them the jewels off their you know off their wrists like we love that story but by the same token we do not like to admit our own ugly we do not like to admit our our own frailties and i think that when you're hurt it's harder to do that and i think that that's why you know i always say to people fidel's not such a genius he's had you know i've heard that so much and every time i've heard that i'm like in what world is this man a genius and that he's a genius and always. i think it's it's always like oh porque sabe lo que está haciendo mira lo que ha hecho con cuba and i'm like how is that smart seriously how is that smart the other thing that i hear from that is like no eso era que él era un sinvergüenza and i'm just like no you don't really need to be un sinvergüenza to understand that there is value and productivity in society so that you can trade and get rich even if that was his intention to trade and get rich like that that didn't necessarily happen either it's almost in this point like giving so much credit to one person discounts what we keep kind of discussing, which is how our society turned against each other, how like these structures had been in place and just like entrenched themselves like in the revolution. In a way, there's like a a, a defeatist element to all of this. Like you don't want to take responsibility for having to think about that and work through the feelings that actually drove you away from your own country. You just blame it on this one guy who, que sabía lo que estaba haciendo, you know? Right. And, and, And look, like the thing is, like I always tell people, I know who Fidel, I know who the United States would be without Fidel. 
But who would Fidel have been without the United States? Mm. Because he got millions by saying fuck you to the United States. Millions and millions from several different countries over decades that wanted him to be the big F you to the United States. Right there, 90 miles away, he was subsidized by Russia, by Canada, by Mexico, by Spain, you know? And again, resentment politics, which is why what's happening now politically drives me crazy. If you look at any dictatorship at any moment, throughout world history that has this kind of fanaticism and this kind of populism, all the seeds are sown with resentment politics. You should be better. You should have more. Look at what they are doing to you. You should have more. They're taking from you, you know? And it's like when you're living in an efficiency and you're not making what you want to make and you are promised that this is the land of opportunity and you are not you know, living the way that you thought you were going to live, you got to blame somebody, you know, and it's much harder to to look in the mirror and say, I got to take responsibility for this. So Carmen, all of that, especially when you're talking about dissonance and contradictions really brings up a very, a very, uh, a topic that makes me a little bit nervous to bring up, but I'm going to do it anyway, um, is how so many of us are unable to identify authoritarianism and, in a sense, like, oppressive regimes, even in new environments, considering that we fled that so hard. Like, we, we have risked our lives to get away from a life of that. And, and it's actually in our backyard. And we usher that forward sometimes with our vote. And I know that you wrote a piece called The Cuban Vote that deals a lot about this sort of dissonance. And I honestly can't even begin to unpack how some people aren't able to see the parallels. I always really just whittle it down to muscle memory. I don't, you know, you don't shake 500 years of history in, in a couple of generations. Again, we were the last, the last colony to rebel against Spain, right? There's a, a muscle memory that we have to being a colony, to, to looking at the strong man, to looking at the king or the queen and being like, well, she said it or he said it like that. And they must be right. Like we have a history of that that I think is hard to shake. But I also think I know a lot of Cubans that when they saw things happening in this country recently, they said to me like, oh, my God. I never understood how the revolution took hold, and now I now I understand why. Like they see their friends become fanatical about a candidate, fanatical. Que no se le puede decir nada, and then they understand how it happened in Cuba. I think one, as a people, you know, my aunt, my great aunt in Cuba told me one thing. She goes, you know, los cubanos nunca le han gustado la política, siempre le han importado el money, el negocio. En negocio somos buenísimo. Pero en política somos malísimos porque de, siempre dejamos que los, los elementos entren a la política. You know, people don't want to bother with politics, so they left it to other people. They wanted to make money. So what happens? People that aren't necessarily prepared for politics or educated for politics see a way of making money through politics. I think, like everything else, if you have a commanding personality, People like to not have to think, and I don't think this is, this isn't, obviously it's not exclusive to Cubans. 
people mm. like not having to deal with why the garbage isn't getting picked up and people like not having to deal with, you know, anything broken. Like let somebody else deal with that. Right. I don't want to have to deal with it. Arreglalo. No, no, yo no puedo. No, no puedo. No me hables de eso. No me hables de eso. Que yo tengo que hacer este bordaje. You know what I'm saying? Like, it's just like, I don't want to hear about it. So I think either you're the kind of person that responds to a problem by seeing how you can be a part of fixing it, or you're the kind of person that just passes it on and doesn't want to deal with it. And in a way, I think culturally, historically, through the generations, we just want somebody else to deal with the problem. And we don't really care who as long as our problem has been taken care of. Because to me, that's the only explanation for how we allow corruption to just flourish wherever we are, right? Because if you look at the Miami City Commission, the City of Miami mm -hmm. Commission, We have some guys on there that have been arrested that have historically been beyond corrupt, like off the charge corruption, and, and they get voted in again and again. You know, I think it's it's laziness on our part. It's muscle memory of of just going with the strong man, whatever the strong man says, and hoping we've got a good guy. And I think I think we respond to El Cho. Because we're entertaining each other. <laughs> we're an island. If Fidel didn't have the personality that he has, I don't think Fidel would have been Fidel. You know? I don't yeah. think I don't think if Fidel hadn't been gracioso for him, right? If he hadn't been charming to people that found him charming, I don't think it would have it would have taken hold the way that it did. I think we don't want to do the work, and it is work, a little bit of work. And we like a show. And and that's actually, yeah. in the Cuban vote, I explored that. I explored a candidate that really had just like ideas, issues, solutions, understanding of how government works. And a guy that everything that my character said, all he would say is like, comunista. And people loved him. And he was like, tremendo buena gente. And everybody loved Gilberto. You know, and what's interesting to me is because I didn't name party in the play because the it was a mayoral. It's based on a mayoral race, and those are nonpartisan. I had a lot of people that I know that I do not agree with politically on anything at all. Tell me, oh my god, I love the play. You know, it made me think about this, or it made me think about that. I love that you didn't name party. Yeah, how could we be so good at making fun of ourselves and making so many funny jokes about our situations as Cubans and not not be not be very self-critical sometimes? The other day I was listening to um Luis Carbonell, this amazing Cuban monologist from like the 1950s and I swear to god, guys, I started to cry. Because like I remembered when our exile was compassionate. And when somebody got here from Cuba, you did everything you could to help them. And you helped them get a job. And you helped them find English lessons. And you helped them take them to the doctor when they need to get to the doctor. And you helped get their kids in school. And you made sure they had clothes and a beginning. I remember when everybody did that. And we've fallen so far from that. And we've fallen into the same kind of divisions that Fidel instilled in us. 
we were gusanos, then we were coria, and now we turn around and say they're not like us. Why would we hand Fidel that win? He's the guy is rotting. He's 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 a he's a bag of ashes hidden somewhere. And we're handing him the win still? In many ways, like uh, when you talked about how our stories kind of forked, how our collective like identity around being Cuban changed in particular during that, like those moments of exile and like all the the various diaspora that has come out of of this. Like in some ways it's been beautiful, right? To have Cubans all over the world. But in other ways, when that happened out of pain and suffering and, and like fleeing, like that clearly has done a lot for our ability to continue to connect with each other as a community. There's also something to be said about the way that winds up expressing itself depending on the environment that you're in. Like not to reduce it down, but I think that, you know, Miami Cubans are a very specific breed, which is the one that we're talking about right now. But to be honest with you, I feel like every different place that Cubans wind up setting up shop and and sort of setting up a community winds up being very different. And obviously that has a lot to do with the environment that we land in. But at the same time, it's like, what are what are the shared cultural values that were once there that have now been gone? You know, I, I do think that the environment, like I've met Cubans in LA, Cubans in Chicago, Cubans in North Carolina, and I do think that the environment that we're thrown in makes a difference. And I think it's because here it's like it's like living across the street from the person you just divorced versus living in another state. I think you gain a different perspective. And I think you're forced to communicate in a different way or you're forced to consider different things. The one thing I will say is that all non-Miami Cubans love to blame all Miami Cubans for all the horrible stuff in our culture. Well, that's good to know. I didn't know that. (laughs) And now I understand a lot. (laughs) You know, like I'm a Miami Cuban and I am not like that. So it's like, you know, you definitely fall into that. When you're out of Miami, our sins take on a new scale. When you ask, do you feel more Cuban or Cuban-American? I always say that, I always used to say I was Cuban full stop. I went to Cuba and I feel like I earned my exile because not only did I see what had been lost, but I found how I could work to help rebuild the country if we were ever able to get to a civil democratic society again, right? I saw a purpose in what everything, all the love and the pain that I saw growing up in my family's eyes, I saw a way to redeem their memory a little bit, right? In getting to know people, in making friends, in understanding truly what they are living, not what somebody that hasn't been to the island in 50 years tells me they're living, but what they are living, Right. And not infantilizing their experience, but really trying to understand their experience. I saw that the government and the people were two different things. It wasn't every Cuban is a communist. Every Cuban is a fidelista. No, like I was able to see that. And I feel like I earned my exile. I was also in New York when the Twin Towers hit. And that's when I felt like I earned my American passport because I realized the privilege that I have as an American, 
the fact that that passport gets me protection in every single country and also makes me a target just because I live in this country, right? So now I usually say I'm Cuban-American. You know, half the time, I, I go half and half now. But I think... I think we're at a real inflection point. I think I think Cubans, Cubans on the island, Cubans in Spain, Cubans in every where, wherever they are, genuinely have to stop for a second and ask if what they really want is a democracy and how are they working towards that. Not only for Cuba, but for ourselves, wherever we may be. And in a way, and I say this in the play, like Miami's the first draft of national politics. What the country is living now, we've lived for years. The manipulation, the propaganda, the lies, we've lived it on both sides of the straits, both sides of those 90 miles of water, we've lived this. And I think that we have the unique opportunity as Cubans to say, are we going to come up with that third way? Are we going to break that binary? Are we going to show people that it's not about party, it's about service, and it's about who serves you? Are we going to show people that your vote actually can matter and that you don't have to be led around by your trauma, you know? Yes. And, and I think we have that opportunity now. I don't know if we're going to take it, right? But we have seen this movie way too many times. We've seen it many more times than a lot of people that are dealing with this for the first time. So how do we break through? And I think it's going to take, like, patience. I think it's going to take a lot. And I know it sounds cheesy, and I'm not very good at this. A lot of love. Like a lot of openness and a lot of calm and and be able to talk things out. And and I really don't see a way forward. There will be no Cuba Libre if we cannot be responsible with the freedom that we experience in this country and honest with the history that got us to this point. Carmen, I think that those are really big questions. And in a way, I think we are all asking ourselves those questions, whether or not we admit that. I think that that kind of underscores a lot of what we think about on a day-to-day basis. Frida and I started this podcast in a way to connect back with our culture and also in a way to start unpacking some of these questions, because I think at at the end of the day, I think that's what we all want. We all want to see our community progress. Nobody wants to live in misery. Everybody wants their children to have a happy future and to be able to look forward to something. And, and no one wants their families in another country. Like nobody chooses to immigrate or leave their country Gusto. Like that is obviously a painful and, and difficult thing to go to and especially to set up shop in a new place and and you know it's it's not easy and then to come to come from that trauma and like you said be led by that trauma into this new life that that you're having is not always the most useful thing and 
I don't know the answer to those questions, but I think ultimately I, I want to say thank you so much, not only for coming onto this podcast, but also thank you so much for all of the work that you do, because I really believe in the power of storytelling. I think storytelling is what actually brings us together, as you've mentioned so many times that you if you take certain buzzwords out of it, then we can actually come to the table and actually have a conversation about what we can agree with and then move forward from there. The minute you focus only on what the divide is, then you stay in that divide and that that is stagnation and that is a that is a prison that is the trauma winning that is that is the past taking hold of you and from there you can't move forward and i think that w- that's what it has to be about what what is going to move the dial forward what is going to bring love and connection to 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 the cubanity i i don't know what it is but i think storytelling is the first step <laughs> like it's i think what you said Carmen, is so true like we all just want to be okay. Like, I would like Miami not to be underwater in 15 years. Like, I'm on high ground in Miami, but I don't want beachfront property in 20 years. Like, to me, what always amazes me across the board is it's so much easier in the long run to do good or to do right. Not even good. You, I don't want to assign a moral judgment to it. To do right than it is to just be backhanded or go a different, it's so much easier for everybody involved. It amazes me that people throw millions at like getting the ability to pollute a river. Like why? Don't be a dick. There's like fish that live in that river. Like people drink from it, you know, like dairy farms have to shut down because 50 years ago we were told that plastics were in there and you guys just ignored it. Now it's costing you billions to clean it up. Like, I think that when when we can get in touch with how we want to do good and not in a Pollyanna way, truly, but just in a way of like, como no joder la cosa, <laughs> you know? That's going to be your next book. <laughs> I know, como no joder la cosa. Like to me, my favorite Cuban expression, like in, in Guantanamera, when they're talking about, it, you know, it was great. It was, it was El Titan's last film. And he was always like Fidel's like buddy and the Cuban premier filmmaker. And all of his films are brilliant. And all of them are very critical of the revolution. So if you, if you guys are doing Guantanamera, the guy decides that if he dies in Havana, he wants to be buried in Santiago. And if he dies in Santiago, he wants to be buried in Havana. And then they have to take the dead person through and make the trip. But when he's talking about like what his final wishes were, they said, pero por qué hizo eso? And somebody says, pa joder. And there's like nine <laughs> out of ten Cuban questions can be answered that way. Right? Because yes. we, we, we like the entertainment. You know, like, oye, tú sí que eres jodedora. That's like a fun, oh like, that's a, that's a compliment. That's that's almost a cubanismo. Like, <laughs> yeah, we normally ask pa people joder. at the end for a cubanismo, but I'm like, maybe that's the cubanismo. <laughs> yeah, like at the end of each episode, we have one. My cubanismo is definitely like pa joder. I, I just think it's it's us. It's like it's it's such a clear answer to any question that where do you go from there? Because you're like, okay, I understand. For our American friends or our non-Spanish speakers, pa joder literally means. I think it it would literally translate into to fuck but but the meaning is more like for shits and giggles in this context like hey why are you doing that oh just for shits and giggles or to mess with you you know just to fuck with you Mm -hmm. you know entertainment you know and we are very good entertainers even (laughs) even if we just make ourselves laugh we're like i 
Did you have a great time? Oh, como me reí. You know, there's, there's, a couple, there, there's a couple of things that you cannot be if you're Cuban, right? One of them is pesado. Oh, yeah. If somebody dice que, like, you're like plomo, you're like lead. Eres un batido de plomo. That's a Cubanian one if there ever was one. <laughs> you do not even want to talk to them. You don't even want to look in that person's direction. You know? Se jodió la cosa. If el batido de plomo sits next to you, you just find a way to, to get away. Yeah. Well, Carmen, thank you so much for coming thank on you. our show. I'm, I feel like my mind right now is racing. I'm like, I don't know how I'm going to sleep. I'm going to be thinking about all this stuff all night. No, no. I'm such a fan. I think I think you ladies do such amazing work. And I, I love the heart and, and, and the interesting things that you guys decide to just like get in and like those little nuggets that you put out of our culture that are so beautiful and tender and funny and just like present and I love the way you guys investigate them and, and, and your worldview and, and the Cubanity view so I'm, I'm really grateful that you guys invited me thank you Oh, no se pasen de graciosa ahora I know oh we have to get a take it easy from you we ask everybody to say a take it easy with us uh, I will give you my grandmother, whom I adored. I'll give you her take it easy because she used to say it all the time. Take it easy. <laughs> perfect. Like That's she insists, like you better take exactly. it easy. You know? It's like, oye, oye, oye. Take it easy. Take it easy. <laughs> take it easy or te lo pongo easy. <laughs> exactly. Thanks so much for listening. We appreciate you. Also, thank you to our patrons, Andy, Elena, Carolina, Lauren, Gianni, Vidal, Christine, Dee, Derek, Ryan, Jose, Susan, Salia, Catherine, Lauren, Kaylee, Amaury, Kristen, Sarah, Karina, Jason, Josh, Yvette, Kellis, and Jesse. You're amazing. We love you. If you're interested in supporting us on Patreon, please go to patreon.com slash takeiteasypod. We hope to see you there. You can also email us at takeiteasypod at gmail.com or buy some merch on our website at takeiteasypod.com. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on ChumbaCasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's ChumbaCasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. VTW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.